Welcome to Rock and Ice's My Epic Podcast, presented by Outdoor Research. I'm Daniel Tachik. As you already know, Outdoor Research has been at the forefront of mountain equipment innovation since 1981. Their products have shown them to be committed to improving the climber and alpinist's experience with awesome gear, from jackets to gaiters to bivy sacks. It's not about summits for OR. It's not about finish lines or sends. It's the journey. So if you've got a journey in the near future, check them out. You will not regret it. We're psyched to be partnering with Outdoor Research for these podcasts. Our goal is to bring to life the most unbelievable epics we've published throughout the years. We all love them. They're some of the best stories in print. In today's episode, John Clear tells the story of what happens when a rescue needs a rescue. All right, let's hear his story. A narrow splinter of granite less than three miles long and walled by 400-foot cliffs, the Isle of Lundy lies far out in the Bristol Channel between North Devon and South Wales. The island boasts a handful of permanent residents, a medieval castle, a church, three lighthouses, and a tavern. And its history is rich, with 216 known shipwrecks, including that of a 1906 dreadnought battleship surrounding its shores. It's also a rock climber's paradise. In the summer of 1971, lured by the undeveloped Lundy Crags, and by way of a holiday after our attempt on Everest's south face, Odd Eliasson from Norway and I joined a group of close chums aiming to climb a few new routes. The party included the leading Southwest Sea Cliff pioneers Pete Bivin and Frank Cannings, with Ken Wilson of Mountain Magazine there to record the fun. When we all got together, a spirit of friendly rivalry arose as Frank and Ken prospected new routes on the Virgin Crag. My line'll go, Frank shouted across to Ken. No, I'm first. Come on, youth. You've got second to me. At that point, Frank started scrambling, unroped, down the steep, loose, exposed gully to the cliff bottom. The rest of us just heard a shout, a rattle of falling stones, and then silence. We found Frank lying twisted and semi-conscious among the boulders at the head of the deep zone. Jeez, Bivin gasped. He must have bounced over a hundred feet. Look at his back, someone else said. It might be broken. Hey, I've still got my Everest morphine, offered Odd. Should I give him a shot? Uh, yeah, go right ahead, I told him. While Ken climbed back up for help, Odd administered his morphine and we wrapped Frank in spare pullovers and Ken's expensive new windproof jacket. The lighthouse workers phoned the police, who coordinate rescue in the UK, and they called for an RAF air-sea rescue helicopter from the mainland. 
and as luck would have it, help was near at hand as well. A mainland cricket team visiting Lundy to play against the lighthouse men included a doctor. I'm, I'm no climber, he said when summoned. And I've left my black bag at home, but I'll do what I can. Just get me down there somehow. We talked him down on a very tight rope into the Zon, where, aided by Frank's distraught wife, Sugar, who was camping with us, he was able to stabilize the casualty, binding up a bleeding scalp wound with a torn t-shirt. Frank's back, he thought, was probably intact. Eventually a chopper appeared and located us, but the Zon was so deep and so narrow, the downdrafts fierce, and time and again, the pilot was unable to reach a position from which his winch cable could reach us from above. The cable was too short, geared only to pluck sailors from the open sea. Finally, a crewman was winched down onto the clifftop, and we climbed up to join him. You'll have to get him up the cliff yourselves, he said. We can take him from there, but with due respect to you chaps, I'm afraid regulations forbid us relying on unofficial equipment or helpers. So the crew could not help us haul. From bitter experience, I knew that a manhaul without proper gear would be an extremely strenuous operation, especially as the doctor insisted that Frank must be kept level. Gingerly, we lashed Frank onto the ancient stretcher from the lighthouse, and on the clifftop, Bivin organized all the climbers, cricketers, and lighthouse workers on the ropes. My task was as Barrow Boy. I had to steer the stretcher and fight to keep Frank as level as possible. Progress was fraught and very slow, and it must have been nearly an hour later that we reached the clifftop, from where Frank was swiftly winched up into the still-hovering aircraft. Tell him he's had morphine, Odd reminded Sugar, a feisty slip of a girl, as she was herself winched up and the chopper set off to sea. By now, the chopper had been in the air for several hours, and when it was halfway back to the mainland, the engine cut out. The pilot transmitted a mayday moments before ditching in the open ocean. Frank, wrapped in Ken's pullover and new windproofs, was still lashed semi-conscious to the stretcher. And his wife, Sugar, couldn't swim. The chopper turned over and sank swiftly, but the winchman managed to throw Sugar out, and by superhuman efforts, the three air crew managed to extricate the helpless Frank from the cabin before he drowned, dragging him onto the life raft where the shocked Sugar clung onto the side. Thankfully, it was high summer and the sea calm. Surprisingly quickly, another chopper appeared performed a routine rescue, and deposited Frank safely in the hospital. As it turned out, Frank sustained only a cracked pelvis and soon recovered. While in due course the sunken helicopter was raised and Ken's pullover and expensive new windproofs, though not in the best of condition, were returned to him. 
The RAF at a court of inquiry refuted any suggestion of running out of fuel, while Bivin and I remained silent, pretty sure that's what had happened. For our part, we recommended that in coastal regions where cliff rescue might be necessary, rescue helicopters should carry longer winch cables, as are used for RAF mountain rescue choppers. In those days, sea cliff climbing was not yet popular, and such rescues had been rare. The sequel came some 30 years later, when the BBC made a TV program about the whole adventure. They reconstructed the event, and at the jolly preview party, we were joined by the now long-retired aircrew, who could only reiterate the official verdict, while we all had a smile. I'd like to thank Noisy Waters for the music. And thanks for listening, and again, thanks to Outdoor Research for helping us bring these stories to life. Be sure to check out the next in our series, Surviving an 800-Foot Fall on Mount Stewart. 